inquibus regionibus saipissime pane quibaris quesatis indiguibus. We very often suffered the lack of enough bread and other food in these places. Na Romania quae terra est optima et valde fertil. For we found Romania, which is very good land and especially fertile for all crops. Excessively devastated and ravaged by the Turks. Yet, ever so many times, you would see such a great multitude of people well refreshed by what was found on the scattered farms, which we found here and there in this region. With the aid of God, who fed 5,000 men with two loaves and five fishes, we were very glad for this, and rejoicing, acknowledged that these were gifts of the mercy of God. Truly, either you would laugh or perhaps shed tears out of compassion when many of our people lacking beasts of burden because many had died, loaded wethers, she-goats, sows, or dogs with their possessions, such as garments, loaves of bread, or whatever pack is necessary for the use of pilgrims. We saw the backs of these small beasts chafed by the heavy loads. Occasionally, armed knights even used oxen as mounts. Who ever heard of such a mixture of languages in one army? Since there were French, Flemings, Frisians, Gauls, Allobroges, Lotharingians, Alemanni, Bavarians, Normans, English, Scots, Aquitanians, Italians, Dacians, Apulians, Iberians, Bretons, Greeks, and Armenians. If any Breton or Teuton wished to question me, I could neither understand nor answer. But we who were diverse in tongues, nevertheless, seemed to be brothers. In the love of God, and very close to being of one mind.
History of the Ultramar, episode 2.23, of Diverse Tongues and One Mind. My apologies once again for the delay on this one. With some of these longer episodes, I really prefer to take my time rather than rush one out or divide it randomly. I wish I could say these delays won't be an issue moving forward, but as we delve into some of the more complex aspects of the founding of the Ultramar states, they might crop up again. I'll try to stick to at least a three-week window at maximum. I am, however, a quality over quantity kind of guy, and sometimes it takes however long it takes. Before we get started, a quick note. In our previous episode, I randomly referred to Killage Arslan as Alp Arslan. Hopefully, this wasn't too confusing. Alp Arslan was, of course, the ruler of the Great Seljuk Empire who defeated Romanos the Oyenis at the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. He was also Killage's distant cousin. Alp Arslan traced his lineage back to the OG Seljuk by way of his grandfather, Mikail, whose older brother, Israel, was Kilij Arslan's great-grandfather. So, they were third cousins once removed, if my family math is right here. My mistake was due to the fact that the Latin sources I was using consistently call Kilij Arslan Suleiman after his father, so I messed up the conversion back to the name he's normally known by. Anyway, today, we're talking languages. We're going to be focusing on the languages spoken by the Crusader army as it traveled to the Levant. This is a very tangent-filled episode. It's basically just an episode of tangents. In case you haven't noticed, my approach to podcasting is somewhat like the open in new tab approach to reading Wikipedia. I do in fact have about 40 Wikipedia tabs open right now. Language is such an important part of our identity. It's the way we transmit culture from one generation to another, and often the way we present our backgrounds to others. Though I'm not actually American, my distinctly raise ah sounds in words like France, and the way I pronounce mirror as a one-syllable word, betray a childhood growing up on the banks of the exotic Lake Michigan. As our opening, quoted from the history of Fulcher of Schatzka, shows, language was also a big deal for the First Crusaders. Fulcher uses the linguistic diversity of the army as a counterpoint to what he presents as the all-unifying mission of the army. A bit of a twist on the mythological Tower of Babel, which was made in defiance of God and provoked God to destroy humanity's ability to communicate so that they would never challenge him again. In this case, the army guided by God transcends the need for such mortal concerns as communication. Though Fulcher has no fucking clue what the Bretons or Teutons are saying to him, he believes they are all very close to one mind anyway. In reality, communication was of key importance to the army. The various regiments of the army seem to have been divided along linguistic lines, and those who could speak more than one language had a distinct advantage, as we will come to see. So today, our main focus will be the dominant language in the army, and in Europe, Latin which at the time existed in two forms. A written form, more or less, very close to the classical Latin of the Roman Republic, and a spoken form, really forms, a collection of dialects that would eventually become the Romance languages. But we'll also talk about the Germanic languages spoken by many members of the army. We'll quickly touch on Breton and the Celtic languages, and we'll also talk a bit about the languages commonly found in the Byzantine forces of the era, Greek, and recap a bit about Armenian as well. Now, the Byzantine forces likely also included speakers of Iranian languages, especially Kurdish languages. 
we won't talk about Iranian languages today, except to say that like all the languages we're talking about, they're Indo-European languages. Armenian was actually thought to be an Iranian language for some time. So maybe Fulcher just lumped them all in with Armenian. We will talk about the Iranian languages, and especially the Kurdish languages at some point. Because one of the most important figures in the history of the Uchermer, the man who brought it all crashing down, was a Kurd. The army also had Turkic speakers and Arabic speakers, as well as speakers of other Semitic languages. These are not Indo-European languages, by the way. We will also talk about these languages in the future. So let's get started. We're starting with Latin and the Romance languages. Not only because they were the main language of the army, but also because they are very well documented. And a lot of what we talk about with these languages will give us a better framework for thinking about the other languages. Okay, so what is Latin? What is Romance? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Well, like almost all the languages we're talking about today, actually, yeah, all the languages we're talking about today, Latin is an Indo-European language. All these languages can trace their origin back to an ancestor, known as Proto-Indo-European, or Pi for short. Pi was never written down or recorded in any way, shape, or form. We have no idea what the speakers of this language called it. But through careful analysis of its descendants, we've worked out a basic idea of what it was like. Which, by the way, is really weird. Uh, it's totally off-topic, but Pi grammar is just bizarre. And the laryngeals, super weird. The latest research on all this indicates that Pi was a language spoken by semi-nomadic steppe herders from Central Eurasia. Back in episode 1.3, I mentioned how their eventual spread from Western Europe to India was just one more example of how easily the steppe has historically spat out influential migrant groups. By the end of the second millennium BC, the European peninsula was home to a variety of distinct Indo-European languages the ancestors of the languages we now associate with Europe. The reconstructed versions of those languages are known as Proto-Celtic, Proto-Germanic, Proto-Balto-Slavic, Proto-Greek, and Proto-Italic. Over a period of around 3,500 years, that is, up to the modern day, the descendants of these languages would go on to replace all the other languages of Europe, with the sole exception of Euskara, the Basque language. Other languages would soon be added to the mix as well, but still, Indo-European languages are the dominant language family in Europe. Interestingly enough, we're seeing the same process play out in the Americas. In just a few centuries, three Indo-European languages, English, Portuguese, and Spanish, have replaced nearly all of the American language families. In fact, just a few months ago, uh, Cristina Calderón, the last native speaker of Yagan, spoken in Tierra del Fuego, passed away, and with her died the Yagan language. To future archaeologists, the decimation of the pre-Bronze Age language families of Western Eurasia and the pre-Columbian language families of the Americas may well seem part of the same process, taking place over the span of a few thousand years. But I digress. Back to the end of the second millennium BC, specifically the Italian peninsula. The arrival of Indo-European speakers to this region is, like most prehistoric events, shrouded in mystery. It seems they likely crossed over from the Adriatic to the peninsula and became closely associated with speakers of Etruscan, a pre-Indo-European language, whose speakers were dominating the peninsula by trading with Indo-Europeans, Celtic groups to the north, and Greek colonies to their south. 
The Indo-European branch that developed in Italy is known, obviously, as the Italic branch, and it had a handful of members, the closely related Umbrian and Oscan, spoken by the Samnites, a language known as Faliscan and its closely related sister, Latin, named for the region of Latium, modern Lazio. The latial culture associated with the Latins starts to show up around 900 BC, and it stands out for its burial urns and cremation of the dead. Later Romans mythologized this era as the reign of the Alban kings, which came to an end with the founding of Rome by Romulus. By the way, despite the myth, it's really evident that Romulus is derived from Rome, that is, if he was even a real person, he was named after the city, and not vice versa. It's like if you met a person named New Yorker and then assumed that New York was named after them. And that brings me to Rome. Leaving aside all the semi-mythological stuff we can find in the work of fellows like Livy, it's clear that the city of Rome was founded by Latin speakers over a period of time. Traces of Latin culture are found in the surrounding hills from around 1000 BC, and it seems that villages began to congregate around the Tiber River, eventually coming together as one city. Early Romans spoke a variety of Latin we now call Old Latin, which they wrote using the writing system of the dominant culture of the region, the Etruscans, who had in turn borrowed the script from western Greek colonies they traded with. The Greeks had gotten it from the Levantine Phoenicians, and the Phoenicians had made it by modifying Egyptian hieroglyphs. Through other channels, this same Phoenician script would become the Hebrew, Arabic, Devanagari, and Germanic runic writing systems, among others. The earliest evidence of Old Latin is on a brooch known as the Praeneste Fibula from the 7th century BC. Carved on the brooch, written from right to left, are the words, Manios med fefaked numagioi, meaning Manios made me for Numazios, presumably the brooch was a gift. If you understand Latin, that phrase may sound a bit odd. The grammar is different, and a lot of the pronunciation is different. Notably, by the period of the Roman Republic, the Z sound in a name like Numazioi became a R sound. By the Classical Latin period, Numazioi was pronounced Numerio. And that, of course, yanks us forward in time, about six centuries to the Classical Latin period, traditionally taken to start at 75 BC, by which point the situation on the Italian peninsula had changed drastically. Rome had become the primary force in a league of Latin city-states and begun to dominate nearly the entire peninsula. The other Italic languages would soon go extinct, leaving only traces in some Latin words. Etruscan would suffer the same fate, though it left behind considerably more loanwords including such common words as populush, people. After consuming both Etruscan and her Italic sisters, you might have thought Latin would be pretty stuffed. But no, the languages of the Italian peninsula were but appetizers. Latin's insatiable appetite would be fed as the Roman Republic and later Empire began to dominate the Mediterranean. Only in the eastern provinces, where the language of empire had been Greek since the time of Alexander the Great, would Latin be halted. By the fall of the Western Roman Empire, five centuries after the start of the Classical Latin period, Latin was spoken not only throughout the Italian peninsula, but in Gaul, Iberia, and the northwestern African coastline, as well as scattered pockets on the island of Britain. Even in the Greek-dominated East, 
Latin was common along the Dalmatian coast and elsewhere in the Balkans. That's a nod primarily to Romanian. Hello. Salut. We're not going to be talking so much about Romanian, but it's super interesting. It just has a really distinct history from the other Romance languages. However, this whole thing is five centuries after the start of the Classical Latin period. And just as had happened after the Old Latin period, the language had changed. Earlier, I mentioned proto-languages. These are derived from the comparative method. Basically, we take a bunch of descendant languages and compare them to each other to see what the common original ancestor was. We know that the Romance languages come from Latin, but something interesting happens when we apply the comparative method to them. Because the comparative method can only tell us the most recent common ancestor. It doesn't recreate classical Latin of the 1st century BC. It recreates Latin as it existed centuries later presumably before the collapse of the empire led to regional isolation and fragmentation. Now, I have a bit of a bugbear to mention here, and it's related to the term Vulgar Latin. If you have a passing interest in the history of the Latin languages and Romance languages, you've probably run into this term. Without getting lost in the weeds here, this term is not so good for a variety of reasons. Reason number one. Vulgar here just means common or non-elite, not offensive. The term comes from how various Latin writers referred to casual spoken Latin as sermo vulgaris, common speech. However, that's not really the biggest problem either. The biggest problem, or I guess to avoid abandoning my list system, reason number two why vulgar Latin is an unfortunate term, is that vulgar Latin is often presented as the quote-unquote true ancestor of the Romance languages. The strongest versions of this take would have you believe that classical Latin died out, allowing the long-oppressed vulgar Latin of the common folk to rise and become the Romance languages. The real issue here lies in presenting vulgar Latin as a distinct language or a distinct dialect of Latin, apart from classical Latin. It wasn't. It was just the casual register of Latin, more commonly spoken by the lower social classes, but no more distinct from classical Latin than informal English is from academic English. They were still the same language. What's more, there's no direct continuity from vulgar Latin of the classical period to the vulgar Latin of the late Latin period to the Romance languages. At each stage, some aspects of vulgar Latin became more mainstream, and others were lost. Because Vulgar Latin and the literary variety we tend to call Classical Latin were in constant communication. They were one language. What we can say is that by the late Latin period, the gulf between written literary Latin and spoken Latin had widened considerably. That is not unlike English, though. A few episodes ago, we talked about the word knight. K-N-I-G-H-T. That spelling seems mostly random to us now in 2022, but when it first entered usage, it was completely phonetic. The K was not silent, and GH represented the sound H. What's more, unlike nowadays, the letter I had one established pronunciation. So not only would you pronounce the word phonetically as Knicht, but if you wanted to represent that word in writing, you would naturally write it K-N-I-G-H-T. What's happened is that language has changed, evolved, 
but our writing system, which is an artificial way of representing the language, has not. Latin underwent the same process. For example, the Latin word for sky is kailung, C-A-E-L-U-M, kailung. Late Latin writers continued to use the same word when writing, but over five centuries, the pronunciation had changed considerably. Instead of kailung, they likely said something like kelo. Might sound drastic, kailung to kelo, but hey, knicht to night is also pretty intense. Here's the thing, though. Our only record of Latin is written Latin. These folks weren't walking around with tape recorders. That's where proto-romance comes in. Comparing the Romance languages gives us a much better idea of what late Latin sounded like. Another source comes from misspellings. Just how a modern English speaker might misspell night, maybe as just N-I-T-E based on the pronunciation, late Latin speakers also had tons of misspellings. We have sources of more informal writing like graffiti, where people casually wrote more phonetically, just as they do nowadays. That does mean that a lot of study about late Latin boils down to finding the Latin versions of bone apple tea. Now, at this point, there might have already been some sort of dialectical variation going on. In fact, it was once common to assume that the Romance dialects reflect very early divergences in Imperial Latin. In 1886, the German linguist Hugo Schuchart put forward the theory that just as the Roman Empire went gobbling up territory, the settlers it brought to each new province brought with them the current form of Latin spoken in Rome. And this form of regional Latin then diverged from what was spoken back at the capital, basically starting its own branch of Latin languages. As the central dialect evolved, newer provinces started from a point closer to what was spoken at the center. This theory was later further developed by other late 19th century, early 20th century linguists. But it is, unfortunately, kakadudu. Close study of the Romance languages clearly shows that they must have remained in contact with each other up until the fall of the Western Empire. After the fall? Well, after the fall, things opened up. We talked about the fall back in episode 2.1. During the heyday of the Roman Empire, the elites held land across the empire. They could own a villa in Provence and Tunis. They could travel from Milan to Seville. Many of the divisions we see in language were really urban versus rural. The elite who moved in cities were shockingly similar all across the empire, whereas those in the country were a bit more isolated. Nevertheless, the latest trends and fashions radiated outwards from urban areas, touching everyone, and that included changes in language. This changed. When the barbarian kingdoms took hold, they put a stop to the connectivity. After all, it wouldn't do to have elites that were loyal to rival kings. And everything became much more local. In this environment, not only were regional differences possible, but they may have even been encouraged. After all, if you identified with a certain group of people in a certain region, and you wanted to make sure that you weren't confused with those other people from over there in that other region, what better way than making sure you pronounced in a way that announced to everyone I'm from here, guys. I'm not from there. What formed in the wake of the imperial collapse was a dialect continuum, where one town's dialect was slightly different, but still understood by the next town over. 
which in turn had its own dialect that was slightly different but still understood by the following town, and so on across the map, adding up to a situation wherein the language shifted over space in such a way that you can never really pin down where to put boundaries between different varieties. But that didn't happen overnight. It took time. And here we run into a big question, the question of periodization. Okay, so we know the starting point. Latin, one language. Maybe with some variation depending on class and region, and especially time. And we also know the end point. Dozens upon dozens of distinct Romance languages. The question is twofold. When did Latin stop being Latin? And when did it splinter into different languages? The answer is complicated. Now, I should mention that I'm mainly relying on the work of Romance linguist Roger Wright for this section. Starting in 1982 with his book Late Latin and Early Romance in Spain and Carolingian France, Wright has developed a comprehensive theory for the evolution of Latin from one language into various languages. Not only the Romance languages, but the lingua franca of Europe, Medieval Latin. I'm primarily drawing on not only Late Latin and Early Romance, but also a socio-philological study of Late Latin from 2002, as well as his contribution to The Cambridge History of the Romance Languages, Volume 2, Contexts, from 2013. Now, Wright's conclusions are not universally accepted. In fact, in The Cambridge History of the Romance Languages, they're questioned by another linguist, Alberto Varvaro. I'm not a historical linguist by trade, but I have to say that I am more won over by Wright's conclusions. Nevertheless, if you want to, dig into the other sources and the other eminences in the field to see what the conversation is all about. To get technical for a second here, I find Wright's description of a logographic use of Latin script during the early Middle Ages pretty convincing. Although I do think his choice of the term logographic is a bit unfortunate and hyperbolic. I also find Wright's description of the impact of Charlemagne and Alcuin on the perception of Latin and Romance to be the best explanation for the development of Romance as a separate language from Latin. We'll get into all that in just a sec here. Before we do, we need to talk about what we mean when we say a language, as in distinct from another language. The way we identify languages we speak is, as I mentioned, tied to our identity. There's no actual linguistic criteria to draw the line between a dialect of a language and a separate language. Think about English today. At what point do we stop calling, say, the English spoken in Australia, Australian English, and just start calling it Australian, or rather, Strian? The question depends on who you ask. You might even find folks that say Strian is already a different language. Leaving subjectivity aside, we often use mutual intelligibility as a criterion, to some degree at least. But the thing is that almost all speakers of a language are to some degree capable of code switching, modifying their dialect to overcome any possible miscommunication. An Australian speaking with a Jamaican, for example, they'll both likely avoid colloquialisms and ease off on aspects of their accent that they know to be more local. The situation must have been similar in the post-Roman Latin-speaking world. The dialects that would eventually develop into separate Romance languages were mixed with traces of what was more akin to Classical Latin. Nowhere else is this mix more evident than in writing. Writing from Iberia to Gaul to Italy during the first few centuries following the Roman collapse in those regions is in Latin. 
all of the primary sources we have from the First Crusade, they're in Latin. Being literate meant being literate in Latin, and that created a certain sense of unity among the Romance languages. But if you take a look around that Romance world today, that's no longer the case. As I said, it's unlikely most people would consider Australian to be a different language from English. But what if tomorrow, the Australian government decided to reform their writing system? Tuna is now going to be spelled C-H-U-N-A. Chuna. And water is now going to be spelled W-O-D-A. Ora. All of a sudden, written Australian becomes more or less incomprehensible. A wall begins to go up between English and Australian. It seems that something similar happened to the Romance languages. The sense that their language was separate from both Latin and other Romance languages was closely tied to the development of unique writing systems and codification of separate grammar rules, as well as local vocabulary. The final stage of this process didn't happen until the modern era, with the rise of language academies, principally the Italian Accademia della Crusca, founded in 1583, the Académie Française, founded in 1635, and the Real Academia Española, founded in 1713. This type of institution was closely tied to political motivations, and over the centuries, they were heavily involved in the association of separate Latin varieties with separate nations. In recent years, this association came to be seen as so essential that the other Romance varieties spoken in Iberia, Gaul, and Italy were often relegated to the status of dialects. Portuguese got out of this one due to their political independence from the Spanish crown, as did Romanian. Which, again, developed in a very different context. But little by little, Spanish, a Romance language that developed in north-central Iberia, French, a Romance language that developed in northern Gaul, and Italian, a Romance language that developed in Tuscany, have been doing their best to live up to their names and become the only language spoken in their respective territories. Just as Latin once devoured her Italic kin, some of her daughters have spent the better part of a millennium devouring their own sister languages. They've carved out their independence in part by emphasizing differences between them and other Romance languages, and in part by destroying some of those other Romance languages. French has been the most successful in this regard. It's likely that only half of the population of France spoke French at the start of the French Revolution in the late 18th century. The rest spoke primarily other Romance languages, as well as a few other Germanic languages and Breton. 200 years later, and it's now the mother tongue of nearly 90% of the population of France. But maybe that's in part because French had a head start on everyone else. Because while this final step didn't happen until the modern era, the first steps towards separate Romance languages took place in late 8th, early 9th century France, during the rule of Charlemagne. As we talked about in episode 2.1, the Frankish warlord Charlemagne became the father of Europe, by bringing nearly all of Western Europe under his dominion. The soon-to-be papal-appointed Roman emperor had an issue, though. His realm was incredibly diverse, not only in customs and traditions, but also in languages. Luckily, like his Frankish ancestors had been doing for centuries, he had an official state language, Latin, which he began to promote throughout all of Europe. In doing so, 
Charlemagne inadvertently brought two Latin traditions crashing into one another. The first was a use that had been growing since the spread of the Christian church in Western Europe, where Latin was the liturgical language. This Latin was used by non-native speakers, who primarily interacted with the written form of the language, and when they spoke it, they tended towards pronouncing each individual letter, occasionally with influence from their mother tongue, the same way any one of us would approach an unfamiliar phonetic alphabet. And the second was the native Latin tradition. As I mentioned, during the late Latin period, even though the pronunciation of Latin had changed, native Latin speakers continued to use the same writing system much how modern English speakers use an outdated alphabet nowadays. Basically, the first group would have looked at a word spelled K-N-I-G-H-T and said K-N-I-G-H-T, pronouncing each letter as a separate sound. And the second group would have known that the spelling was just a bit arbitrary. It was actually pronounced night. There had been occasional issues due to this before. For example, some British clergymen who traveled to Italy had mentioned that they could barely understand what the Pope was saying when he spoke, though they had no issue with written communication. But Charlemagne and the connectivity of his empire brought these two groups careening into one another. And what ended up happening is that the first group, the non-native speakers, won out. Starting in the late 8th century, a new type of Latin pronunciation began to be enforced. The leader of this reform was one of Charlemagne's key advisors, a man named Alcuin, from the town of York in England, where Latin was not the native language. So he obviously had a bias when he wrote, Words should be everywhere, uniformly, softly, and clearly pronounced, so that each letter's sound is enunciated. A quick note here is that although Alcuin's pronunciation sought to restore all the silent letters of late Latin pronunciation, it was not identical to classical Latin. There are many aspects of classical Latin that were likely lost. What was even more serious is that this reform effectively cut Latin speakers off from their own language. According to the Carolingian reforms, this was now Latin. Imagine if the same thing happened to English. E I. Liter, heid, to, be, pronounced, pronounced, to, he, say, me, way, I, ein, ever, I, ward. It's almost impossible to understand. There was no pretending anymore that these two were the same language. This reformed pronunciation was incomprehensible to native speakers. And as Charlemagne's authority meant that this was now Latin, what were native Latin speakers to do but adopt a new name for their language? Breaking a linguistic continuity that had existed since the first Latin speakers had referred to themselves as such over 2,000 years earlier in the region of Lazio. The name they chose, as we've talked about before, was Romanique, which meant in a Roman way. They spoke in a Roman way. And in the Roman way, Romanique was pronounced Romanza. Romance. <laughs> and thus we find a few years after Charlemagne and Alcuin's death, a declaration from the 813 Council of Tours that said, Sermons to the public should be preached in the rustic Roman tongue, or German. It seems that this reformed Latin pronunciation would not be taking hold in everyday speech. It would be confined to the church for now. 
Eventually, this style of Latin became ecclesiastical Latin, but that's a story for another day. A few decades later, Charlemagne's grandson, Nithard, included the first piece of romance writing in his history of the wars fought between his cousins, Louis the Pious' sons, Charles the Bald, Louis the German, and Lothair. Charles, who ruled in West Francia, roughly modern France, and Louis, who ruled in East Francia, roughly Germany, ended up uniting together against their eldest brother, Lothair of Lotharingia. And on the 14th of February, 842, they swore oaths to each other in front of their respective armies, who also swore oaths of allegiance. Interestingly enough, Louis the German's oath is recorded in Romance, as is the reply from Charles' native Romance-speaking army. Then Charles the Bald's oath is recorded in a Germanic language, a dialect of Frankish. We'll get to you, Germanic, just hold your horses. Followed by the reply from Louis' native Germanic-speaking army. So, Louis says, Pro Dea Amor e pro Christian Pobla e nostra comun salvament. Desh di en avant, en cant Dea Shaver e poder madonat. Si salvarai e a chest mon frater Carla e den ayuda e den caduna cosa. Si com om par dreit son frater salvar death. And oh, ked il mi altresi fatset. Ed aloder, nul plait non caprendrai qui mon vol, cest mon fratra Carla in damnashet. For the love of God and Christendom and our joint salvation, from this day onward, to the best of my knowledge and abilities granted by God, I shall protect my brother Charles by any means possible, as one ought to protect one's brother insofar as he does the same for me, and I shall never willingly enter into a pact with Lothair against the interests of my brother Charles. And Charles's army responds, Si lodovic chagrament, cosom fradra Carla jurat, conservat, e Carla smea scendra the soa part, non la stanet. Si yo retornar non lent pois, no yo na noish, qui ea retornarent pois, en nula ayuda contra Lodovig, non liver. If Louis keeps the oath which he has sworn to his brother Charles, and my lord Charles on the other hand breaks it, if I cannot dissuade him from it, neither I nor anyone else whom I could dissuade from it, then I shall render him no aid against Louis which is then followed by almost identical passages of Charles swearing his oath and Louis' army responding in Germanic. The choice to include these oaths in vernacular languages has been a topic of debate for centuries. The rest of Nithard's text is in Latin. Even bits that must have been spoken in a vernacular language are translated into Latin. So why is this bit in the common speech? There are many takes. But the one I find most convincing is that of Jeanette Beer in her book, In Their Own Words, Practices of Quotation in Early Medieval History Writing. Analyzing the rest of Nithard's text and the context in which he was writing, she comes to the conclusion that the use of vernacular languages was a way to symbolize the lack of unity in the Carolingian Empire, where once a standardized, universal Latin was the language of the empire, now it was fractured into Romance 
and Germanic. She says, quote, Nithard, writing in his own persona, chose to use Latin, not the vernacular, on the last page of the histories, when he prophesied nothing but further dissension and nothing but doom for the dissenters, borrowing the baleful voice of the Old Testament prophets. If his two vernacular quotations were seen by Charles and Louis as a pact to unify kingdoms for the common good, for Nithard, they were a graphic representation of the fragmentation of an empire that had been laboriously welded together by an earlier Charles who was deservedly called emperor. Nithard's real voice is audible in his final quotation when, borrowing the scriptural authority of the Book of Wisdom, he mourns the two good men in his family while forecasting never-ending dissension and God's vengeance upon the others. Et pungnabit orbis terrarum contra insensatos. And the earth will war against the foolish. End quote. And with this, Latin had been separated from Romance, but not universally. What's important to note here is that these reforms had their greatest effect in the heartland of the Carolingian Empire. And they had only really separated Latin from Romance. Divisions among Romance languages were still slow to come. That's part of the reason why Old French is so variable. It's really just a term used for Romance texts from a certain swathe of the Romance dialect continuum in northern France. These varieties would evolve into distinct languages over time. At the time, though, they weren't really perceived to be different. And because national interests hadn't developed language authorities yet, there was no reason to standardize spelling. You just wrote as you spoke. So let's fast forward a few hundred years to the late 1090s, three centuries after Charlemagne and Alcuin. In that day and age, Romance and Latin were increasingly being viewed as split. Again, we know the starting point, Classical Latin, and we know the end point, separate Romance languages. But people at the time didn't. They didn't consider themselves to be just a step towards something any more than we do. They weren't halfway through a transformation. They were the final stage of their day and era. It's important to note that writing in Romance was not really considered low class or anything like that. Those who were low class were completely illiterate. Writing Romance was something done by the same elites that wrote florid medieval Latin. The same places where we find what classicists would call very good Latin are home to the most vibrant Romance texts as well. The elite trend was towards diglossia, the use of two languages, especially in writing and probably in speaking as well. Latin, now medieval Latin, was the language of the church and of most serious literature, while the vernacular was increasingly being used for things like epic poetry. But that separation was not fixed yet, and some folks were still clinging to the old ways. Take the Gesta Francorum, for example. In many ways, it represented an older tradition. Those more familiar with classical Latin might take it to be poor Latin, with a heavy Romance influence. But in many ways, it was more reminiscent of late Latin. It used the familiar classical Latin facade as the written form of what we might call early Romance. The way the anonymous author used Latin was much more in line with how it had been used in the last days of the Empire and throughout the so-called Dark Ages. But this use was fast becoming outdated. When the more quote-unquote eloquent adapters of the Justa Francorum criticized its crude, rustic Latin, 
they're skipping over the fact that they're using a newer definition of what Latin was. Latin that solely existed as a non-native language. For them, the vernacular should be written in vernacular. And this division would come to be cemented over the following century. The 12th century saw what is often called a renaissance, an explosion of writing, both in Romance and in Latin, which became much more similar to classical styles than it had been during the Dark Ages. We talked about the massive population boom in those centuries, and the heightened connectivity due to pilgrimage and increasingly complex diplomatic webs. These channels served as vehicles to transmit the innovative linguistic concepts from Carolingian France into Iberia and the Italian peninsula. Throughout the 12th century, distinct literary traditions would begin to grow in the Romance world. These came to set the various dialects apart, setting the stage for the efforts of the early modern era. By the 13th century, Latin was truly dead, or rather, a zombie. Its corpse was still animate, used as a lingua franca and liturgical tongue, but it was prohibited from evolving and growing as living languages actually do. It's possible that the increased contact of different groups during expeditions such as the First Crusade helped to spur this process along. After all, just as Charlemagne had once envisioned a uniform use of Latin throughout his empire, the First Crusaders likely used something like Alcuin's phonetic pronunciation to communicate. Various different Romance groups could probably still communicate in the vernacular, the Romance languages are still mutually intelligible to some degree, and they must have been even more so over a thousand years ago. But there weren't just Romance speakers in the army. There were also Germanic speakers. No doubt bilingual individuals were useful here. Godfrey of Bouillon was likely just as able to speak Romance as he was able to speak Germanic. But as Albert of Aachen shows us, Charlemagne hadn't only succeeded in quote-unquote restoring Latin in the Romance world, he'd also brought it to the Germanic world. Just like in the Romance world, it was not the vernacular, but among elites, especially those who were church-educated, it was likely very useful. Because just like in the Romance world, Germanic was splintering. So let's get one thing out of the way first. German is not the same as Germanic. The German language is one modern Germanic language. It isn't the original one or in any particular way more representative of Germanic languages. What's happened is that the region of Germany has had many different names, and in different languages, different terms have been used for the language spoken there. In English, Germany and German are used. In Spanish, Alemania and Aleman. In German itself, Deutschland and Deutsch. The use of these terms is somewhat random. German and Aleman go back to Latin terms. Deutsch is a Germanic word that means roughly of the people. During the medieval era, it was used to refer to basically all the continental Germanic languages, which weren't really distinguished from each other. Because what would become modern German, more accurately referred to as standard high German, Hochdeutsch, ended up as the primary language of the Holy Roman Empire, once Latin was more or less ditched. So it got to keep the name, except in English, where it was assigned to Dutch. Because, yeah, in English for no particular reason, Dutch is used for the language of the Netherlands, known in Dutch as Nederlands. Just a quirk of history. In linguistics, however, Germanic is the name chosen for an entire branch of Indo-European. This choice is also somewhat arbitrary, and named for the region where these languages became well-known, what the Romans called Germania, though it doesn't exactly line up with the modern state of Germany. 
So when English is described as a Germanic language, that doesn't mean it comes from German any more than it means English comes from Swedish or Dutch or Afrikaans. This is another pet peeve of mine, in case that isn't clear. As I said, Germanic is a branch of the Indo-European language family, just like Italic. However, it is analyzed very differently from Italic, because it's had a very different history. Proto-Italic can be traced back to around 2500 BC, and it was broken up into separate distinct varieties by around 700 BC, maybe earlier. Whereas Proto-Germanic can only be traced to around 500 BC, and depending on who you ask, it didn't break up entirely until around 300 AD. So it's much younger. What came before Proto-Germanic is hard to know. It was almost certainly part of a larger family, but those other languages have been lost to prehistory. All we can do is recreate the last common ancestor of the current Germanic languages. The defining characteristic that sets them apart is a sound shift, known as Grimm's Law, named after Jacob Grimm, the elder brother of the Brothers Grimm. See, the Brothers Grimm were not only interested in folktales, that was just one branch of their larger language-related pursuits. They were also some of the pioneers in the field of Germanic linguistics. And Grimm's Law is a great example of that. Grimm's Law details the development of stop, or occlusive consonants, from Proto-Indo-European into Proto-Germanic. Stop consonants are consonants that completely block the flow of air, like t, p, or k. The entire sound change is a bit complex, but one aspect of it involves those three sounds, t, p, k, which were weakened and became fricatives, sounds produced by friction, articulated in the same position. So t became th, p became f, and k became h. In English, h became h later on, and other Germanic languages have had other shifts. If you compare English words to Latin loanwords, which didn't have this shift, you can easily see the correspondences. For example, English fish with a f corresponds to Latin fischkisch, loaned into English as Pisces, the fish. Thunder with th corresponds to Latin donal, which is at the heart of English detonate. And horn with h corresponds to Latin cornu, as in cornucopia, literally horn of plenty. You can probably find plenty of other examples, especially if you know any other Germanic or Romance languages. Now, as I mentioned, Germanic is generally assumed to have broken up around the 4th century AD. Before that, there were likely dialects which were to some degree mutually intelligible. We classify these into three big groups, West Germanic, North Germanic, and East Germanic. East Germanic seems to have been the first to split off, maybe around 250 BC. It's also the first Germanic language we have any substantial writing in, more than just inscriptions. And that's thanks to the Goths. The Gothic language was an East Germanic language, and thanks to their close contact with the Roman Empire, primarily the Eastern Roman Empire, they picked up writing much earlier than other Germanic groups. Gothic texts are almost all translations of Greek texts, especially legal codices and things like that. But we also have tantalizing fragments of the Gothic translation of the Bible, made by a Goth named Wulfila, Little Wolf, who we've already talked about before. Remember, the Goths were Aryan Christians. 
Gothic writing was key to figuring out what Proto-Germanic was like, because they came so much earlier than other texts. We have to wait until the 9th century for full texts in any other Germanic language. Ironically, the first well-documented branch of Germanic, the East Germanic branch, was also the first to go extinct. It seems most East Germanic speakers, including the Goths, the Burgundians, and the Vandals, quickly assimilated to Greek and Latin. The last East Germanic language, known as Crimean Gothic, went extinct in the 18th century. While the East Germans were off writing and assimilating, another branch of the Germanic languages had begun to thrive in Central and Northern Europe. This branch is rarely talked about on its own, because we don't have records of it until it also split into what we call North Germanic and West Germanic. North Germanic developed into Norse, and from there into the Nordic languages. But West Germanic? West Germanic is really hard to pin down. It seems that North and West Germanic really existed in a bit of a continuum. Though they seem to have branched off into separate languages at some point, maybe around the same time East Germanic did, or probably a bit later, they remain to some degree mutually intelligible, especially where they came into contact with one another, and certain trends that started in one branch easily spread into another. This is one of the defining features of the Germanic language family as a whole, and one of the reasons why it's almost impossible to pin down a tree model of the Germanic family, in which one language branches off from another and everything can be organized into neat little clades. Germanic linguists have instead often turned to a wave model, which is less focused on descent from a parent language and more on proximity to other languages, geographically speaking. In the wave model, innovations that arise in one language spread to other dialects or even other languages through contact. So a particular way of pronouncing a sound might be picked up by other unrelated languages. A good example here is the uvular R sounds in French and German. It's unclear where this sound started, but it spread throughout many of the languages of Western Europe as a bit of a fad, basically. The original tapped or trilled R sound is still found in some rural areas of France and Germany, but in cosmopolitan urban areas, uvular sounds are de rigueur, or de rigueur. These uvular sounds have even spread into other Germanic and other Romance languages. For a time, it was even common in parts of England. These kinds of changes were even more commonplace during the first millennium, and they involved many different varieties of North and especially West Germanic, so that it becomes very hard to establish exact relationships, again, especially with West Germanic, which on occasion had dialects that came into such direct contact that the result seems to have been almost hybrid language, impossible to trace back to just one parent language. The result looks a lot like a set of streams, which often separate, but just as often come back together, sometimes for a brief moment, sometimes permanently. So instead of distinct branches when it comes to West Germanic, loose boundaries are drawn on the different varieties based on the extent to which different changes have affected the various dialects. There are traditionally three main West Germanic groups. North Sea Germanic, which developed around the Jutland, modern Denmark, and where the peninsula connects to the continent. North Sea Germanic languages include Frisian and Saxon, as well as the Anglic and Saxon dialects brought over by migrants to the British Isles, which developed into English, nowadays the most widely spoken Germanic language. 
On the continent, Saxon dialects mostly developed into the Low German languages, which were affected to a greater degree by the other West Germanic languages to the south. To the southwest, you'll find the Weser Rhine Germanic languages, spoken primarily in the Low Countries. Here, Dutch is the most widely spoken variety. And in the Highlands, you'll find Elba Germanic, often just known as High German, though that term is better reserved for what we might call Standard German. What's important to note is that mutual intelligibility seems to not have been lost until around the 7th century, and before then, it's hard to talk about any of these groups as being truly separate. That's why, way back in episode 2.1, when I talked about the Frankish language, I was unable to pin it down in the West Germanic family tree. The modern descendants of Frankish are, roughly speaking, Vesser Rhine Germanic languages. Kind of. But it's anachronistic to talk about them as separate from the other West Germanic languages until later on. We often mark the end of this linguistic free-for-all with a sound change known as the High German Consonant Shift, at which point the High German languages began to isolate themselves. Though aspects of this shift also bled into other West Germanic languages, especially at border regions. Like Grimm's Law, the High German Consonant Shift made fricatives out of some stops. So, Proto-Germanic, Wator, is German, Wasser. The original sound, however, was preserved in English, Water. Although it's now being replaced by a voice tap in many dialects, like by water. You can also hear the same T sound in Dutch, Water, and Swedish, Vatten. It also made affricates in some cases, sounds which combined a stop and a fricative out of previous stops. So, German Apfel versus English Apple, and Norwegian Epple, which preserved the original sound in Proto-Germanic Aplaz. And it made other sounds voiceless. So, German Tak corresponds to English Day, and Danish Dag from Proto-Germanic Dagas. Standard German would later be more or less invented as a unifying written form of West Germanic that based itself mainly on High German varieties, creating the standard Hochdeutsch of today. But that didn't really start until the Reformation in the 16th century, when Martin Luther went and translated the Bible into German, using a somewhat invented form of High German that drew on influence from a few different prestigious dialects. This standard language was then imposed to some degree on various regions of the then Holy Roman Empire, creating the idea of High German and Low German, based on geography again. Even though Low German is more closely related to Frisian and English, it came to be treated as a dialect of High German. Anyway, all that's way beyond our scope. What's really key for us is how late these realities and changes came into play. Back in the 11th century, even though we can't talk about mutual intelligibility throughout the West Germanic world, on the continent, they often still operated as one language, with varieties that blended into one another. In Latin, they were all called Teutonnes, Teutons. And that brings me back to Fulcher of Chartres, who wrote, Who ever heard of such a mixture of languages in one army, since there were French, Flemings, Frisians, Gauls, Allobroges, Lotharingians, Alemanni, Bavarians, Normans, English, Scots, Aquitanians, Italians, Dacians, Apulians, Iberians, Bretons, Greeks, and Armenians. If any Breton or Teuton wished to question me, I could neither understand nor answer. Fulcher lists off a 
a long list of regions. But we shouldn't assume that means he thinks of each of these regions as having their own distinct languages. There were mainly two languages he would have thought of as vernaculars. Romance, which included speakers from France, Gaul, Allobroges, Normans, Aquitanians, Italians, Dacians, Apulians, and Iberians. And Teutons, which included Flemings, Frisians, Lotharingians, Alemanni, Bavarians, English, and probably Scots as well. But that leaves us with three terms to decipher before we wrap up. Those last three groups he lists, Bretons, Greeks, and Armenians. Of these, Fulcher makes sure to mention that he can't understand Bretons or Teutons. That's because these were two languages from Latin Europe, the languages of the Crusaders, whereas Greek and Armenian were the languages of Easterners, obviously unintelligible to him. Teutons, again, is just Germanic speakers. But what about Bretons? Bretons are Celtic speakers. Celtic is, say it with me boys and girls, an Indo-European language. Much like Proto-Italic, Proto-Celtic is dated back to around the 2nd millennium BC, and they appear to have been one of the most successful branches early on. During the 1st millennium BC, you could find Celtic speakers up in the British Isles, they are the first languages we know that were spoken there, and you could find them in Iberia, and you could find them throughout Gaul, and you could find them even as far east as Anatolia. Nowadays, only a handful of Celtic languages exist. They're all descended from the Celtic languages of the British Isles as well. And the only Celtic language that's not classified as endangered is Welsh. Gaulish, once spoken throughout Gaul, was replaced by Latin, as were the Celtic languages of Iberia. Gaulish held on in pockets until around the 6th century AD, though, before being wiped out by late Latin. It did leave a considerable amount of loanwords in French, though. Galatian, closely related to Gaulish, was similarly replaced by Greek in Anatolia by the 4th century AD, but may be held on in some pockets until the 6th century. The remaining Celtic languages are known as the Insular Celtic languages, as in from an island, and are split into two groups. Goidelic, these languages all stem from the Celtic language of Ireland, Irish, Scottish Gaelic, and Manx, and Britonic, from the island of Britain. The only continuously spoken Celtic language left on the island is Welsh. However, Cornish, another Britonic Celtic language, has been revived to some extent, after going extinct a couple hundred years ago. However, another group of Britonic speakers can be found back on the continent. During the early Middle Ages, as Gaulish was dying out, a group of Celtic speakers from Britain migrated to Brittany, which is named after them. Breton flourished in Brittany until the French Revolution and the efforts by the French government to stamp out all regional languages, which we talked about earlier. In the 11th century, though, the Bretons had a distinct culture and language. The first texts in Breton predate the first texts in Romance, the Strasbourg Oaths, the ones we talked about, by half a century. At the time of the First Crusade, the Bretons formed a part of the Kingdom of France, but their language kept them to some degree separate from the Romance speakers. Hence why Fulcher mentions he doesn't understand them or the Teutons. The last two languages we have to talk about are, surprise surprise, Indo-European languages, Armenian and Greek. They each form their own distinct branch, although some linguists link them together. That's very controversial, though. Proto-Greek dates to the late 3rd millennium BC, and its reconstruction dates to only a few hundred years before we start to have writings in the ancient Greek dialects. Now, 
there were a wide variety of ancient Greek dialects. They were only mutually intelligible to some extent. Here, dialect can really be taken to mean languages. But Greek speakers all communicated with each other to some extent. And they would come to form really just one community. The first ancient Greek dialect we have traces of is Mycenaean Greek from the late second millennium. Freaking before the Bronze Age collapse. Later on, it seems like there were three broad groups of ancient Greek. The Western varieties, spoken in Epirus, what is now Greece and Albania. Albanian, by the way, is another unique Indo-European language. Back to Greek. There's also the Central varieties, spoken around Thessaly, as well as on Cyprus. And the Eastern varieties, notably Attic, spoken in Athens, as well as the regions in Thrace. However, it's important not to make too many divisions in Greek. Because, as I mentioned, one thing that characterizes the ancient Greek world is the use of standardized versions that incorporate aspects of different dialects. It seems that as far back as Homeric times, the ancient Greeks came up with the same solution Martin Luther had for the High German languages, blending them all together to increase intelligibility. So instead of further diverging into local varieties, like what happened with the Romance languages, the ancient Greek dialects fed into standard forms. Ancient Greek authors were often able to use a variety of these for different genres of texts, or even to blend them. So Homeric Greek blends Ionic and Attic Greek from the Western variety group with Aeolic from the Central group. This eventually led to the rise of a more or less universal Greek dialect, Koine Greek, meaning common Greek, which was based primarily on Attic from Athens, but also blended in other varieties. Koine Greek was developed by the various Greek speakers of Alexander the Great's army, and his conquests spread it from the Balkans to India to Egypt. It eventually became the lingua franca of the Eastern Mediterranean and the Eastern Roman Empire. It's the language the New Testament was written in, and the liturgical language of the Greek Orthodox Church. And it's the ancestor of the Greek spoken natively by the Byzantines. However, older traditions in Greek never really die out, and if we look at the Greek of the Alexiad, we can see that Anakomini, who must have been a native speaker of Byzantine Greek, descended from Koine Greek, does not use her native dialect when writing. She writes in a style that is based on the Ionic Greek of Herodotus. Herodotus, of course, had an appropriate variety of Greek for writing history. Nevertheless, some slips show that although she was a very skilled user of Ionic Greek, her native Greek was very different in pronunciation, grammar, and vocabulary. Modern Greek is mostly descended from the spoken Greek of the Byzantines, though, like I said, influence from ancient Greek dialects continues to be a thing. There's only one language that descends from an ancient Greek dialect separate from the Koine version, Tsakonian, which descends from the Western or Doric varieties of Greek. And it split from the Koine at least 2,000 years ago, if not more. It's not mutually intelligible with modern Greek, and it's also on its deathbed. Only a handful of elderly speakers remain. Now, the last language mentioned by Fulcher is Armenian, which we talked about back in episode 1.7. I actually recommend going back to episode 1.7, because we'll soon be dealing with the Armenians again, and it's good to know where we left off with them. Armenian is an Indo-European language, but like Germanic, we don't have early writings from it. 
It doesn't show up until 405 AD, when Mesrop Mashtots developed the Armenian alphabet so he could give his people their own liturgical language. Because of that, a lot of its history is opaque to us. Because it's on a unique branch as well, we can't really use comparative linguistics to figure out what was going on in earlier stages. Instead, we have to speculate about an internal history. For this reason, Armenian has a lot of sound changes that seem bizarre. We'll wrap up today with one of them. Probably the first thing you learn about Armenian in relation to the Indo-European languages. This is the change from Proto-Indo-European Dwa to the Armenian sound Yerk. For example, Proto-Indo-European Dwoch. That's one of those laryngeals at the end there. If you're an Indo-European person, um, yeah, I have no opinions about what the laryngeal sounded like. Anyway, Proto-Indo-European Dwoch becomes Latin dual, as in duality and all of that, as well as English too, which lost the wa sound somewhat recently, but kept it in spelling. In Armenian, though, the same sound, dwoch, became yerku. Now, this seems a lot weirder than it really is. First, adding on sounds to the beginning of words is super common. Duo to edwo isn't that weird. Second, wa is often switched with something like gua or ga. For example, Germanic loans into Romance languages do this a lot. English war is related to the Germanic loans that became French guerre and Spanish guerra. So, edwo to edgo isn't that odd either. And da to r is also super common. It happens in English. I mentioned it earlier. I pronounce ladder with a r sound, for example. So, edgo to ergo isn't that weird either. O to u is also really common. It happened in English and French. It's happening in Portuguese. So, ergo to ergu, also really standard. G to k happens a lot too. They're articulated in the same place. It happens in German. Tak is still written with a G, even though it's pronounced tak with a K. So ergu to ergu. And then all you need is a diphthong pronunciation of e to ye, which happens in many Romance languages as well. So you end up with yerku. Duoch to edwo to edguo to edgu to ergu to yergu to yerku. Maybe. Although, who really knows the order? You would need to look at a bunch of different examples and figure out what order these all happened in and how they affected each other. But because we only have Armenian for these changes, it's really difficult. If we had other related languages, we might be able to see some of the steps that led from Dwoch to Yerku, but we don't, so they seem super odd in isolation. And Armenian was, of course, incomprehensible to Falcher of Chartres, who in September of 1097 was about to have a chance to interact with tons of Armenian speakers. Because when the Army of the Cross split at Heraclea, Fulcher left behind the northern Frenchman he traveled east with. He headed straight through the Cilician Gates, following his new lord, Baldwin of Boulogne. Baldwin was about to embark on a series of events that would lead to him becoming the first crusader to gain himself a title in the east, as ruler of Edessa. First, he would have to deal with not only the Armenians of Cilicia, but also with a man who was soon to become his biggest rival, the ambitious third-generation Oatville, Tancred. The two would come into conflict in Cilicia, 
and the bad blood that developed between them would come to shape the history of the Ultramare.